This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. The first reading is from Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst these bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. With trembling, kiss his feet, or he will be angry and you will perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Happy are those who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the second reading this morning is from John, chapter 14, verses 8 to 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, The one who believes in me will also do the works that I do and, in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Please do be seated and thank you for your patience. Uh, Of course, we're trying to still spread uh, you all around and it's just a bit difficult to ush and find places, so I'm sorry about that. Of course, there are spaces in the gallery and also there's usually people don't tend to fill up from the sides, so there's uh, there's always a bit of space there for future reference. But to the matter at hand, if I could show you God, what difference would it make to you? Philip, Jesus' disciple, sitting at the table with him that last night, asked Jesus, in fact demanded of Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. I'm sure you can relate 
to Philip's question. If God is there, why doesn't he show himself? Why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Why can't I have one of those encounters with God where he makes himself unmistakably and tangibly present so that I'm left with no doubt? Why, of all things that God could choose to be, does he choose invisibility? When we are creatures so dependent on our eyes, we are the creatures who say seeing is what? Believing, right? To be invisible seems like the biggest image problem of all, the ultimate image problem. Philip says, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. We'll, that'll be enough for us. If only Jesus would show them the Father, they would be satisfied. Interestingly, he didn't say, we'll be convinced as if to see, to see God would be the answer to some intellectual puzzle or settle an argument between friends. He said, satisfied. And he said that, and I think we can recognize it in his statement, because there's so much more at stake here than the answer to a puzzle. And there is for us, too. If we could only see the Father, gaze upon him directly with our most trusted sense, our vision, then we can have certainty about meaning and purpose and goodness and truth. And that's what we'd like. Even a glimpse would do. And I think we silently promise ourselves, if I could see God, then, you know, I would put up with unanswered prayers and unexplained sufferings and disappointed hopes. And I would follow you, God, without reserve. I might even become a missionary if I could only see unmistakable evidence of your presence before my eyes. If only you'd show yourself to me. I'm not going to, I wouldn't quibble anymore about your demand on me and my possessions, my sex life or the other parts of me. If only we could see God, we would not make for ourselves more agreeable God's substitutes from the more tangible things that surround us. As the Christian writer Philip Yancey puts it in a book called, a really great book called Reaching for the Invisible God, he says this, Creatures of flesh and blood, we lose patience with anything that does not manifest itself on our terms. But in his frustration, Philip the disciple has forgotten two lessons that he, of all people, should have remembered from the Old Testament and that we should know too. First of all, when he says to Jesus, show us the Father, he should have remembered that God is invisible for the very good reason that gazing upon his glory is not something that flesh and blood can do without destruction. He conceals his glory from us in order to protect us. He hides from us for our sake. He is invisible, not because he is non-existent, but because he is too existent. His being is too intense for us to stand. The heat of his, his very essence is more than we can bear. When God reveals himself to Israel in the Bible, it's always with his mask on. Moses is the one person who is permitted a glimpse of God's glory and then only a glimpse and then he has to be hidden in the rock as God passes by. 
Because too full on an encounter with the glory of God would be destructive for Moses. When Isaiah the prophet has a vision of God in the temple and the glory of God, he falls onto the ground as though dead and he says, Woe to me for I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. I'm stuffed. In other words, the sight of God, it's not just a vision of his immensity, like looking at a telescope into the depths of space. It's not just the blinding light of his glory, but the radiance of his holiness. A physical brightness of the sun is a good analogy. We cannot gaze on God, though his light gives light to all things. So Philip should have remembered this, show us God. Really? <laughs> you, you want to see that which will destroy you to look at? You want to gaze upon the holy in your unholy state? But secondly, Philip forgets how the people that did witness extraordinary and marvelous things, direct evidence of God's power, were evidently not satisfied by what they saw. In the story of Exodus, the people witnessed God firsthand, crushed the Egyptian juggernaut, remove them, liberate them from their oppressors, and then deliver them through the Red Sea. Extraordinary stuff. They saw with their own eyes the mighty hand of God protecting them and leading them. They saw the pillar of fire that led them by day, by night, and the pillar of cloud by day. They gathered at the base of Mount Sinai and heard on the top of that mountain the rumblings of thunder and saw the smoke and the lightning, and they shrank back, knowing what they had come to. And yet, it didn't take long. And there we have them urging Aaron to make them a golden calf to worship because they've got bored with waiting. They still complain to Moses about the hardships of the journey as if God would not provide for them. They still did not believe God when he said that he would drive out the inhabitants of the promised land before them and give it to them. And so that generation, you remember what happened to that generation, including even Moses, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and did not enter the promised land. So what might we say to Philip? Do you really know what you're asking to see? And would you believe it if you saw it anyway? Philip's question sounds pretty obvious, and I think we have some sympathy with it, but he has too simple a grasp of what God is like, and he has too simple a grasp of what human beings are like. And there's a third thing, too. And this is what Jesus says to him. We pick it up in our passage. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. It's a bit of a scold, to be honest, isn't it? It's a bit of a ticking off for poor old Philip. You want to see the Father, Philip? You have seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Have you not been listening all these, all these years? Have you not had your eyes open to see before you? You have seen the Father. He just doesn't look like you might expect him to look. 
But the Son and the Father are so intimately bound to one another that to see one is to see the other. The Father, says Jesus, is in him, the Son, and the Son is in the Father. When Jesus speaks, the words he says are his Father's words. Jesus underlines what we learnt last time about him, that he was the way and the true truth and the life, who is the only way to the Father, who has a unique relationship, an unparalleled intimacy with God the Father, and so is our way to him. There is such an exclusively tight relationship between them that we might say, we can say, that to know the Son is to know the Father. And we get this from other places in the New Testament too. In Hebrews, we read that he is the exact, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's being. They use the word, the word, the Greek word character, which is like the, the, uh, the, the picture of the queen's head on the back of a coin. Uh, remember coins? Remember cash? We used to use that. Um, the, that is the imprint. Jesus is the imprint, the impress the character of God's being. In Colossians, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the image of the invisible, the the visible of the invisible. He's what you can see of the invisible God. Quite simply, if you want to see God, God can be seen because he's appeared in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. God can be seen in Jesus. If you want to see God, look to Jesus. As John says at the beginning of his book, the word who was with God in the beginning and was God has become flesh and pitched his tent, come camping with us. He lived among us as one of us so that we might see his glory full of grace and truth. The great American theologian Richard Niebuhr once said that Jesus was like the Rosetta Stone. Have you ever seen, has anyone here seen the Rosetta Stone? Uh, I'm not sure if it's in the British Library or the British Museum. There was some dispute at 8 o'clock as to whether this was the case. Um, But I have seen it. I know that I saw it as a kid. And the Rosetta Stone is an intriguing archaeological discovery because through this discovery, uh, the, the ability to read the Egyptian hieroglyphs was opened up. The Rosetta Stone, um, it's, it's just a piece of rock with some writing on it, but this, before it was discovered in 1799, no one knew what Egyptian hieroglyphics meant. But the stone has copies of the same text written in three different languages, two of which were known to ancient historians. And so by comparing them line by line, scholars began to understand hieroglyphs, the things that were written all over the tombs and monuments of ancient Egypt. Jesus is our Rosetta Stone. We cannot see God. We know he's there. We can know very little about him on our own. But Jesus, we certainly cannot know him, but Jesus shows us the Father in a way that we can understand. He shows us the Father in a language that we know so that we can know God the Father. In Jesus, we can see the glory of the living God, full of grace and truth, shown to us in a way that we can bear. This is what Jesus was asking his disciples and asking us to believe. This is where he was asking us to look 
He said to them in verse 11 of our passage, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Look back over my time with you and believe the evidence of the things you've seen and heard. It was not just Jesus' words, but also the things he did that show us the Father. Surely the disciples could remember the great signs that Jesus had performed in front of them, giving sight to the blind, making the lame walk, feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness, raising the dead. Now these are not just demonstrations of great power. They're certainly not conjuring tricks, but reminders, signs that point, reminders that point to the great things that God did in the days of ancient Israel. They remind everyone that God is master over death and life and he is the Lord who makes and restores all things, that he is the one who provides for his people. And Jesus is now the one doing those things. He's not just an unusually gifted man. The Father is in him, working through him. So what about Philip? Was Philip satisfied by this answer? How do you think he responded? Well, the fact that the very next day, Philip and the other disciples deserted Jesus makes us think that perhaps he wasn't satisfied by what he'd heard from Jesus. He was hoping, as we do, you and I, for more of the smoke and the thunder, right? More, something perhaps more spectacular. But what Jesus showed him by going to his death on the cross Philip would later realize was that all that distant and unapproachable holiness of God had been given to us, for us, in love. That night, the night before the cross, it seemed simply to be not enough. But in the days after, Philip and the others would receive it as more than they hoped for, which is why they told this story, why we have the Gospel of John. And that's where Jesus' words in verses 12 to 14 come in. They're extraordinary words, aren't they? They're an extraordinary promise to anyone who has faith in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, then you will do even greater things than the things that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. You did even greater things than the things he did. If the Father has been working in Jesus, then those who believe in Jesus will likewise experience the work of the Father God in them. Now, how will this happen? I mean, what, what's going on here? How will these works, the works of Jesus' disciples, how could they possibly be greater than the works of Jesus? How could he even promise such a thing? A clue for us is in this. Because Jesus says, this will happen because I'm going to the Father. It's a bit of a repeat of what he said at the beginning of the chapter, that he was going to make a place for them. The very basis of the things they do will be the fact that Jesus will go to the Father to prepare a place for them, to make them holy, to make a home for them with God the Father. He has died and risen again, and there will be then a new order of things, a new age. The works of the disciples will bring, will bring in and belong to this new age on the other side of Jesus' resurrection, his new life. And that's because the events that are to follow this night around the table at Jesus, his death that first Good Friday, and his resurrection that first Easter day, 
are an even greater unveiling of the glory of God. They show with an even greater clarity what the words and works of Jesus were about. And so in the new era, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' disciples will pray in Jesus' name and will accomplish his mission. He will accomplish his mission through them. The disciples will begin as this tiny, scattered group of believers, riven with division, abandoning their Lord, and they will become a worldwide community embracing the world in the name of Jesus. Those who pray in Jesus' name will pray confidently because the Father will glorify his name in the Son. They will do greater works because it will be Jesus and his Father working in them. Now, he's not promising here that the disciples, their, that their prayers will be like magic spells, right? He's not a promise to answer your prayer for a personal helicopter. I know you've prayed that prayer. It's not promised to, pray, to answer that kind of prayer. Rather, Jesus will be powerfully at work in our prayers as we seek to glorify God, which is exactly what he, is to do, he wants to do. As we pray in Jesus' name, we will pray according to the thing his name stands for. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. Why we pray according to his will, if it is his will. That's why we seek to know him and his will, so that we will pray according to it and pray according to the things his name stands for. And when we do this, we can indeed pray with confidence because the God who raised Jesus from the dead will accomplish all that he promises. You and I, we are too measly in our prayers. We are simply not daring enough. The borders of our prayers are too narrow. Our prayers belong, it seems, in small cupboards when they should belong to the wide open spaces. When we pray for what we know God wants to accomplish, let's pray with daring in Jesus' name. Since we know that the Father is in the Son, since we know that he has shown us the Father, so let us pray. Let us pray for the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this secular and lost nation. Could we pray that? Could we believe it? Could God accomplish that? Certainly he could. Let us pray for unity and faithfulness in his church. Now that needs a miracle, doesn't it? But could he do that? Yes, he could. Let us pray for ourselves and let us pray for one another that we would overcome the darkness of sin and despair, that we would be able to take on board the knowledge of God's forgiveness and live it out, that God's grace would transform us day by day as individuals and as a community in his name. Let us pray for our own church here that we would be supernaturally changed to become more like Christ, to be transformed into his image, that our community here would be overflowing with people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would have in our midst many, many more children and young people, that we would see people coming to Christ every week. Let us pray in the name of Jesus. So show us the Father and we will be satisfied. 
Jesus has shown us the Father. The question is, are you satisfied? Jesus does not show us God as we would like him. We ask him for certainty and he asks us for faith. And that you might find unsatisfying. After all, as the great American novelist Flannery O'Connor once put it, don't expect faith to clear things up for you. It is trust, not certainty. But by faith, you can really, truly see God. He has to be believed to be seen. By believing in Jesus, we are open to the extraordinary power and promises of the Father to do his work in the world. As we serve him by our acts of love, however tiny they might be, that phone call to the person that we suspect is feeling lonely or just a little bit in despair, or that small act of service that we do for someone who really needs our help, picking that person up to bring them to church, that that question we asked over a cup of coffee at morning tea, as we do that, as we conform our lives in obedience to his will, again, piece by piece, little bit by little bit, we find him tangibly present in us. He is at work powerfully in us in those things. We're very much like Philip. We want, to say, we want to say, God, show us yourself. I want the tingly feelings. I want the extraordinary religious experience, whatever that is. And instead we miss where God is actually at work, where he is powerfully at work in us every day. But because he is powerfully at work in this way, we can pray in the name of Jesus with extraordinary confidence that he will do his will. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, a book we looked at last year, these, these words have been ringing in my ears this week. He says, Now to him who is able to do so much more than all we ask or imagine. I love that, isn't it? It's like saying, you ask stuff, but God actually can, he can do even more than you imagine. So, so expand your imagination when you pray. Ask for more. He's able to do so much more than we, are able, than we ask for or imagine. According to his power, that is at work, and here's what Paul says, within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.